0: Hello and welcome to this, our 400th Nature Podcast. On the show this week, a quiet revolution in the science of weather prediction.
1: Gradually over the last 40 to 50 years, the weather forecast made quite a big stride forward. And the Earth's two
2: distinct water worlds. So that has huge implications eventually for human consumption and in the long term in understanding how climate changes. Plus, we look
0: back at just a few of the last 400 shows and put Kerry Smith on the spot. This is The Nature Podcast for September the 3rd, 2015. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. First up, Kerry
3: Smith has been rethinking water.
4: If you remember nothing else from school science, you might recall the water cycle. You'd figure that scientists know all there is to know about the water cycle by now. But a new analysis suggests our knowledge of the water cycle might have a few leaks. In the model we all learned, water evaporates from oceans and lakes or gets breathed out by plants into the air. It condenses into droplets that form clouds and then falls as precipitation. Its journey takes it into rivers and streams, eventually back to the oceans, or otherwise it infiltrates the soil, and then the cycle begins again. This model is all just one big connected flow diagram. Any droplet of water could, in principle, be anywhere in the water world. But a new study in nature draws the surprising conclusion that there's not one water world, but two, and they're quite separate. Let's get researcher Mae Evaristo from the University of Saskatchewan
2: to explain. As an ecologist, people would sample soil water in a different way from what a hydrologist would do. So in, the, in other words, different techniques. And um, using the same isotopes, it turns out that those two waters, sampled by different, two different techniques, are different isotopically speaking. Um, so that's how the two water worlds hypothesis came about, because people thought that they were sampling the same water and analysing for the same isotopes, but in fact they're very different isotopically and they're not mixing with each other. Just to be clear, the result that you
4: have found from all this new data is that the water cycle is not just one big cycle, it's kind of split into two pretty distinct water worlds.
2: Yeah, so one world had something, has something to do with with plants so plant transpiration or plant water uptake and what we find with the two water wells is that you have a compartment if you will of water in the subsurface or under the soil that is not related to the water that recharges the ground and exits into the stream and the computer models that people use to look at the source and the fate of water And, you know, everything that we know about uh, climate change right now has a land component in it. So there's the ocean, and there's the land, and there's the atmosphere. The land component of global circulation models that feed our present understanding of climate change uh, is predicated on a single mixing tank model. In other words, every single molecule of water that infiltrates the ground meets and greets and mixes with each other. What we're finding with the stable isotopes, however, is that there is not a single mixing tank. The hope is that people in the community will take this with them, particularly modelers, and will try to conceptualize the world the way the isotopes are telling us how the world works. So So that has huge implications eventually for you know, for human consumption and in the long term in understanding how climate changes. Why wouldn't plants
4: learn to use water from elsewhere in the cycle? You're, you're saying they're only using kind of one input, if you like, water from the soil, is that right?
2: The physiological or the eco-physiological um, basis for why plants are doing this is actually... The jury is still out there, um, but the evidence shows in uh general or broader scale, that the plants do not seem to be interested with water that is more mobile. In other words, the reason why there's water that recharges the ground and exits or replenishes the stream is because those waters are faster, if you will, quote-unquote, and whilst the other waters, the slower ones, are the ones that kind of hang around within the soil, and because they hang around too for too long within <laughs> the soil profile and they're within reach of the root zone, then they end up being taken up by plants. Why they do, do that in a mechanistic sense and a plant physiological uh, perspective, nobody knows really for sure at this point. But the isotopes are powerful enough to be able to show that uh-huh, this compartment is very, very different from the others.
4: Can people in forestry management or people looking after plants in various
2: ways use this information? What we're showing here had a lot of implications for nutrients and fertiliser use. And, you know, we, we worry about the fertilisers ending up in our streams and needing to algal blooms and nutrification, and it's true. The main implication for, for example, in, in forestry or even in garden uh, or in agriculture is that the nutrients in the water that are useful for plants to grow will only be available if that water is retained by the soil, meaning that some waters may be flushed to the stream or deep underground rather than being made available to plants to grow. And I think that, is, uh, uh, that has a impor- very important implication for agriculture.
3: That was researcher May Evaristo from the University of Saskatchewan, whose water measuring project has taken him all over the globe, from the Philippines, where he's originally from, to Hawaii, his favourite fieldwork destination. For another truly global study, check out the Nature YouTube channel this week, where we ask, how many trees are there in the world? Here's a clue, it's more than six. Go to youtube.com forward slash nature
0: video channel. This week in Nature, a review article explores a quiet scientific revolution. I'm talking about the field of weather forecasting. Over the past few decades, meteorologists have been beavering away improving our forecasting abilities, and I hopped on a train to find out more. Here in Britain, there are few things we love to talk about more than the weather. Rain or shine, heatwave or hurricane, we can't get enough of it. Every morning, thousands of Brits check the forecast, presumably for new talking points. Around the world, thousands more probably check it just out of interest. But weather forecasts don't come out of nowhere. I've come to the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts in Reading, UK, to find out more about the latest advancements in the science behind the forecast. Hello. I'm here to meet Researchers at the ECMWF create complex models to predict global weather patterns using data from weather stations around the world. I arrived just in time for their weekly weather meeting. From the this meeting was a far cry from the weather section of the 10 o'clock news. After my mind had been truly boggled by graphs, figures and maps, I spoke to Alan Thorpe, the director of
1: the unit. Weather forecasting is is very much based on basic science actually the laws of physics because we describe uh, how the weather evolves it's a circulation of the atmosphere right around the globe and that's determined by uh, the laws of physics governing the movement of air it's it's a part of fluid dynamics actually Do you think that the general public
0: perceive weather forecasting in the way that you've just described it
1: I suspect not actually and and actually even other scientists in other fields perhaps don't fully uh, realise how, how this is done and, and gradually over the last uh, 40 to 50 years the weather forecasts and the numerical weather predictions that lie behind it have actually meant that we're uh, made quite a big stride forward in our ability to, to predict the weather and to understand what's going on in the atmosphere and that's really at the core of, of physics, uh, mathematics, computer science because these equations need a computer to solve them
0: and they don't need just any computer. Stuart Mitchell, a team leader for all things electronic, took me to see just one of the center's warehouse-sized supercomputers.
1: Wow, this is a big room full of a lot of boxes. So uh, The white units you see there and there, the beige units on the edge and the middle are all air conditioning units. And then these big black boxes, these are the computers? This is a supercomputer, so it looks like lots and lots of racks bolted together. Technically it's all one computer. We have two of these, there's one in this hall and one in the hall next door. I believe currently the two machines here are numbers 29 and 30, the most powerful computers in the world.
0: These machines run 24-7, relentlessly crunching numbers. But what are they modelling exactly? I spoke to Peter Bauer, a senior scientist at the centre.
5: What they're really trying to do is uh, simulate what's happening in nature. So they simulate all the physical processes that are relevant uh, to to weather. Radiation, cloud condensation, uh, heating of land surfaces, transport of air. So everything that is relevant for, for weather is actually being represented in the model. And the more accurately you can do that, the better the weather prediction will be. Peter told me that one of the next big steps in forecasting is embracing uncertainty. So we're trying to move away from the model where we say the weather in London is going to be sunny and the temperature is going to be 10 degrees in five days. Uh, We're trying to assign an uncertainty with that. Uh, And we do that also through an, an explicit simulation of uncertainties as we do a simulation of the state of the atmosphere.
0: Peter describes the advancement of his field as a quiet
5: revolution. I asked him why. But it's very difficult to say and and boil this down to advances in in individual parts of the science. It's really the sum of many little contributions that have to come together to enable us to enhance predictive skill rather than single, isolated, big discoveries of discovering a new particle or something.
0: In the future, as technology develops, weather stations will be sending in more data for the teams at the centre
5: to process. But this isn't the biggest challenge, according to Peter. So we probably think uh, that the data volume is going to grow by effective 10, maybe 20 in the next 10 years, while the model's complexity is going to add maybe three orders of magnitude in the next 10, 10 years. So we have to deal with a much larger diversity and data volume and explosion of information on the model side than on the observational side.
0: More complex models mean much more computing power. But the solution to the challenges ahead isn't as simple as just brawn. There are still fundamental scientific questions that need to be
5: answered. There are good examples at all scales really. If you look at very small scales, uh, for example, the, um, how ice clouds are generated is basically unknown and very difficult to, to model. But the science of forecasting has one big advantage
0: over other physical sciences. Here's Alan Thorpe again.
1: One of the uh, really nice things about the field that that we're fortunate to work in is that it really conforms to the scientific method because we're we're constantly predicting what's going to happen in the future and then we observe what actually happens. So we're testing out our our theories every day. In other scientific fields, it's much more difficult to do that. Weather
0: forecasts provide a vital service for millions around the world, be it planning events or life-saving warnings for extreme weather events. But as a Brit, I had one other very specific and very vital question to ask. At the time of recording here, it's a Friday. We have a national holiday coming up. I'm wondering if you can tell me if it's going to rain. Uh, There's a
5: good chance of spotty rain in areas. Uh, There will be light as well, Uh, but a lot of clouds uh, in in most areas in in this area of London and Reading.
0: That was Peter Bauer from the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasting, or ECMF to you and me. Before Peter, we heard Alan Thorpe and Stuart Mitchell. No, I was actually out the country this weekend, but did he get the forecast right? Sadly, he did. In
3: true British style, our holiday was a washout. Typical. What a tragedy. I missed it. Well, coming up, we delve into the Nature Podcast archive and test out Kerry's knowledge in a special segment to celebrate our 400th show. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Sharmini Bundel.
6: Invasive toads can be made to turn on each other to control their populations. Don't worry, this doesn't involve a mass toad fight. Instead, keeping cane toad tadpoles and embryos together stops the embryos growing. When a team from the University of Sydney raised tadpoles and embryos in a container with a mesh partition, they reduced the embryo survival to less than 5%. The tadpoles seem to produce a chemical that blocks embryo growth. Now, ecologists often remove tadpoles from breeding ponds Try and keep the population down. But instead, keeping a few tadpoles in a container or in the pond could be the downfall of any new cane toad embryos. The Journal of Applied Ecology has more. Seabirds are being bombarded with plastic. Our oceans are full of it, up to 580,000 pieces per square kilometre, according to one estimate. Now, a paper has looked over 50 years of studies on seabirds and shown that more and more of them are accidentally eating this stray plastic junk. In fact, they estimate that 90% of seabirds today have pieces of plastic in their guts. And by 2050, that could be up to 95%. Even supposedly pristine areas of ocean are becoming polluted. There is a simple solution, however. Stop dumping plastic into the sea, as the less plastic there is, the less of it ends up in birds' stomachs. That paper is in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
0: As you may know, this is our 400th Nature podcast. And to celebrate this, we've come up with a special segment for this show in particular, featuring the only member of the podcast team to have stuck it out for all 400 episodes. And that's Kerry. Hi. Hi. We've trawled through eight years of podcast archive and picked out some clips of Kerry's contributions. Kerry's job is just to dig through her brain archive to work out what on earth she was talking about.
4: I often ask myself this very question.
0: Clip number one, I think, is ready. Kerry, are you ready?
4: I don't think I'll ever be. Let's give it a go. They've got this beautiful burnished look. Their bodies are almost mahogany. Kerry, what were you talking about? Burnished is a strange word to use, isn't it? I once used it to describe uh, the flavour of some cheese in a segment from a couple of years ago. Do you think it's cheese? Uh, I th- I sense not. I'm on location here. I can tell it's kind of echoey. Oh, audio knowledge there. Yeah, and... Um, There was this guy who gave me a tour of the Natural History Museum's beetle collection.
0: That was, in fact, you talking to Dr. Maxwell Barclay from the Natural History Museum about museum collections being under threat in 2015. Good start, Kerry, but it was a very recent one. So maybe that's a bit too easy. OK. We'll go a little bit further back in time for clip number two.
4: I'll report back on my latest experiment to try and get slugs to levitate.
0: Kerry, what were you talking about?
4: (laughs) Why was I talking about slugs levitating? I mean,
0: that's really your question here. Is this from Backchat? It's not from Backchat, actually. These are all from the Nature Podcast.
4: Can we do this like 20 questions? Was I talking to a scientist or a reporter?
0: You were talking to a scientist.
4: And so he had been doing something that made me think of this quite odd analogy. Of she slug. had been doing she. something. Ah, Oh, so there was a scientist. We made a video about her too. She had been teaching... It sounds really improbable. She'd been teaching fish
0: to walk. You are right. It was Emily Standen from the University of Ottawa. So two for two, Kerry. This is very good. (laughs) I'm very impressed. This is amazing. But we're still moving further back in time. So we'll go back a little bit step further and go for clip number three. Thanks
4: for flying in. And I'm sorry for calling you a bird brain. (laughs) 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 That's just as insulting as I normally am to our contributors. But I might have been talking to a scientist who maybe studied birds extinct birds extinct, extinct dinosaurs oh she's getting closer am i yeah much closer uh, is it about dinosaurs flying dinosaurs it's yes i wonder if henry g joined us in the studio did he i henry... would have called him a bird brain because we know each other so well he wouldn't have been offended
0: he was actually quite complimented when you told him that he was a bird brain we've got that as well i don't mind at all i think it's a compliment but uh, many birds are extremely clever such as crows That was from from 2011, so that's quite a long time ago. It's a good good memory. I'm impressed. Okay, well, we've got a couple more, and this one, again, you have a bonus point for guessing who you're talking to. It's from 2015, so relatively recent.
4: If you don't come up with some more good jokes, you're going to be so an exo-presenter of this show. It's an exoplanet pun, isn't it?
0: It is indeed an exoplanet pun. Um, But who were you talking to, and what was the story?
4: Now, in 2015, you said it was, I suppose there have been two main presenters. Uh, and me. So it could either have been that like, I was talking to Adam Levy or Jeff Marsh.
0: Which of the two is more likely to need to be told to get better jokes?
4: Well, you see, Adam's a reasonably new, you know, arrival here at Nature. And I just think, am I the kind of person who would slag him off to his face like this in the first couple of months of his his tenure?
0: Whereas Jeff?
4: Whereas Jeff, you know, quite frankly, we hate each other's jokes. So I think it's going to be me talking to Jeff.
0: Let's see whether or not you're right. Kerry reminds me of a dwarf planet.
4: Hmm. Yeah, well, your core looks a bit
0: molten. Well, that explains my magnetism.
4: Get back in your orbit. You've fallen right off your axis there, haven't you?
1: That was below the... Asteroid belt.
0: <laughs> that was indeed a pun run, a fantastic pun run that between you and Jeff Marsh following an interview about the magnetic history of meteorites and what that teaches about the early solar system. Puns about planets. Oh, what a gem. And um, the next one is something which is a little bit old, but a little bit your area. And we'll see whether or not you can get the pronunciation right of oh, no. what you are talking about.
4: It looks to me like a giant kind of woodlouse with a skinny tail.
0: Carrie, what were you talking about? I'm
4: always in museum collections, aren't I? Just like staring at people's beetles and stuff. This—it's oh, probably a dinosaur, isn't it? A giant woodlouse with a skinny tail, ha- a, some kind of trilobite.
0: Some or kind maybe of trilobite. An arthropod, Not a dinosaur. An arthropod. An arthropod. <laughs> yeah, you're getting close. You're getting—in fact, you're getting bang on. In fact. Hmm. <laughs> but the question is, which arthropod is it?
4: Um. We published a paper about one that was discovered in China, as many of them are, and I went to speak, this is, I don't know if this is the right interview, but I went to speak to a man called Greg Edgecombe at the Natural History Museum, and I think the species that they discovered, I'm going to try it, Fushinuia.
0: Let's see, let's see if you're correct. Yeah, that's not too far off. Uh, the animal is called Fushanuia protensa. That one's actually from 2012, so that's three years old. You've managed to remember a particular interview and a particular Chinese name of a particular Chinese ancient arthropod.
4: But you know how I am about fossils, and especially if they're found in China, I love
0: that. Even more so if they have preserved neural tissue, which is what this one in particular did. Too easy. Well, that's the end of our segment about Kerry and what she was talking about over 400 episodes of the podcast. Unfortunately, she did very well. I was hoping she would remember less.
4: Well, you know, you just don't use wood lice as a descriptive term. That often, even in science, even in Chinese paleontology.
3: Time now for our weekly news chat and Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello. So one of the most popular stories this week was a story on quantum spookiness and everyone seemed to love this story, but one person would not have liked it very much and that person is Einstein.
7: Although he was one of the pioneers of quantum theory, he never really liked it. And in particular, he didn't like what people call quantum weirdness, the fact that uh, quantum physics seems to be very counterintuitive. And when we talk
3: about quantum weirdness, at least in this particular case, what kind of spooky behavior is going on?
7: There's two main uh, types of uh, quantum weirdness that are involved here. One is the fact that um, in quantum physics, an object can be in two states at the same time. And so that means, for example, that an atom can be in two places at the same time or it can be uh, spinning in, in two directions, counterclockwise and clockwise at the same time. And, and the atom itself doesn't know which direction it's spinning in until the experimenter actually does a measurement and then that makes the atom choose. And the, se- the second type of quantum weirdness is called entanglement. And it has to do with two objects whose quantum states are somehow linked. So it could be, for example, uh, two atoms are spinning in the same direction, but they don't know if they're spinning both clockwise or both counterclockwise. It's only, again, once again, it's only measurement that makes them decide. But But the really spooky thing is that this can happen even when the two atoms are very far apart. So, for example, they could be a million miles apart from each other, and when you measure the state of one and you say, oh, it's, it's going clockwise, the other one, you go and measure the other one, and you find out that the other one is also spinning in the same direction. But until you've done that measurement, it wasn't spinning in one direction rather than the other. It was spinning in both directions.
3: You can see why Einstein was spooked, because if this is true, it seems to imply that entangled particles could somehow be communicating with each other faster than the speed of light, but a famous test, the Bell test, aimed to see whether Einstein's suspicion at all of this was justified.
7: The Bell test is named after John Bell, who came up with this idea in the 1960s. He devised a way to determine whether Einstein was right, that there couldn't be such an entangled communication or entangled state, or Einstein was wrong, and indeed there is this spooky action at a distance. And since the 70s, there's been a number of experiments that have shown using Bell's test that Einstein apparently was wrong. But skeptics have always pointed out that these tests had loopholes in them. So they were not watertight demonstrations. So in particular, um, if you make the test in such a way that the two particles are not far enough from each other, then in principle there could be some signal that goes without violating the speed of light limit that goes from one to the other. So you have to put them far apart. And the other loophole that people have noted is that a lot of these tests are done with photons, and when you test photons, you have to detect them. And detectors, they have usually low efficiency, so you end up losing something in the order of 80% of the photons that you produced. So what if the 20% of photons that you do detect were not representative of the whole test and they somehow skewed the results so this new sort of version of the bell test
3: circumnavigated these loopholes what did it do to avoid both at the same time
7: so the test used photons but in an in- indirect way it used photons to entangle electrons and they were electrons that were uh, more than a kilometer apart in two different labs at the university of delft and electrons are easier to measure without losing track of them and and so there's no problem of losing 80% of them as there is with photons. And because they were far, far enough apart, there was also no issue of whether they could communicate slower than light. And therefore, this plugs both loopholes at the same time in one experiment. Often when we hear about experiments on quantum behavior, it
3: seems very abstract. But in this particular case, there might actually be some practical implications of this result.
7: Yes, this is the really spectacular thing about quantum physics of the last couple of decades or so, is that all these questions that most physicists did not worry about, these philosophical questions now are front and center in the development of quantum computing and quantum encryption. So the idea of making, uh, of using quantum physics to ensure that your data is encrypted with unbreakable keys. Um, so in particular, if, if you um, ex- exchange information using photons and you lose 80% of the photons, there is a way that a hacker could use that loophole to fool you into thinking that you're really getting uh, you know, bona fide quantum states, whereas, in, in fact, you're only receiving things that have been created by the hacker himself. But if if you find a way to exchange information without loopholes, physicists have shown that this also makes... The safety of your data, basically, 100%. So
3: now that this test has been done, is it basically completely game over for Einstein and game over for hackers, or are there still some loopholes which need closing?
7: So philosophically, there's still one potential loophole, which is kind of far-fetched, and it has to do with whether experimenters have free will in the way that they set up the experiment. But for practical purposes, what we know now would enable you to uh, build virtually unbreakable encryption. Now, the problem is the technology that was used in this experiment is still very, very slow. So even if you constructed a device based on, on this technology, you'd be able to exchange only a few bits per day or something like that.
3: Well, I can definitely see why Einstein didn't like this idea. It seems very confusing and counterintuitive indeed. But thank you very much for taking the time to explain it to me, Davide.
7: Thank you, my pleasure.
0: That's all from this week. Tune in next week for a whirlwind tour of the history of autism. And from all of us in the Nature podcast team, thanks to everyone who stuck with the podcast for 400 episodes. That's almost a solid week of your life you've spent listening to us witter on. A week well spent, in my opinion. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker.